can you imagine feeding a team of cyclists at the Tour de France? How do you access, prepare and serve food for eight riders when you're travelling to a different town, sometimes hundreds of kilometres apart, every single day for three weeks in a row? In our special third anniversary episode, we speak to Nikki Strobel, who's worked as a chef in professional cycling for the last 10 years, firstly with the Australian Green Edge team and more recently with the Norwegian Uno X team. Nikki shares his highs and lows of working in pro cycling, the role of nutrition science in shaping what the riders eat, his favourite moments from working in the sport, and where he was, most importantly, when the Green Edge bus got stuck under the finish line in stage one of the 2013 Tour de France. Hello and welcome to Fueling Endurance, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers for. So we'll take that question, break it down and invite a guest expert or athlete or coach to add their perspective as well. Today, it's episode 68, Feeding Elite Performance at the Tour de France with our special guest, performance chef and now dietitian, Nikki Strobel. But before we get talking about this, what, uh, what have we got coming up? Well, a few things, Steph, and people will probably have seen some of these changes if they've been on social media and they follow us on there or been to the website, um, but they'll be aware that obviously the podcast has changed. This is it officially our first episode, Steph, as Fueling Endurance rather than The Long Munch, and there is the the website has changed as well, so it's now fuelingendurance.com, and fueling is spelt with one L, not two. People may have also seen if they signed up for the newsletter, which we'll get to in a minute, or on social media, that our ebook is finally available, Steph. Woohoo! I never thought this day would come for a while there. Oh my golly. I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm gonna we're gonna need a bit of a what do you say, hiatus, like a bit of a time period yes. before we look at another one now. Oh yes, definitely. So initially, <laughs> it's only on sale through the website fuelingendurance.com, uh, but it will be available on Google Books and may possibly be by the time you listen to this. We're just going to go through a bit of a process with Google to get that set up. Originally, we were looking at doing it through Amazon, but their process is very unwieldy. To get onto Kindle is an absolute nightmare, particularly when you have a whole bunch of tables and flowcharts and diagrams and things in it. So we decided in the end, no screw that we'll just go with google and with the website so the book itself is a collection of written articles that cover the first two years worth of questions that were featured on the podcast and there's 49 different questions covered in all the book itself turned out to be over 260 pages and it's packed with practical tips and suggestions tables diagrams flow charts stories and quotes from expert researchers nutrition practitioners coaches and athletes who have been guests on the podcast each part of the book can be read as a standalone article or as a section of articles about a particular topic. And it really provides an invaluable resource for the runner, cyclist, triathlete or coach seeking to improve their nutrition gain and address common questions or challenges that they face. So the different sections in the book, if you're interested, there's a section around fueling, a section around hydration and electrolytes, one around recovery, body composition, diet types and trends, specific nutrients and supplements, 
bringing it all together in terms of practical and logistical considerations, extreme environments, nutrition for specific event types, nutrition for specific groups of athletes, gadgets, gizmos, and data, and a troubleshooting section, things like cramping, gut issues, sleep, dental health, etc. Yeah. So congratulations to our competition winners, Sophie, Paige, and Sean, who received free copies of the ebook for their contributions to podcast feedback and reviews on Apple Podcasts over the last few months. And just a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at Fueling Endurance on Instagram or Facebook or at Fuel Endurance on Twitter or otherwise known as X. Yes, unfortunately, Steph, they didn't allow us to have enough characters to write Fueling Endurance as a handle, so we had to shorten it to Fuel Endurance for X. I love that little rant there. It was hilarious. I wish you could have seen Al in in action there. Oh, don't get me started when I tried to change the handle and it said I couldn't have that many characters. I'm like, for God's sake, it's a handle. (laughs) We were one character short, Steph. (laughs) Love that. Love it. It was either (laughs) fueling endurance or fuel endurance. I went with fueling endurance. Keep going, yeah. Keep going. No, I'm done. (laughs) If you want to keep in touch with tips, new episodes and other pieces of sports nutrition news and listen to some more of Alan's rants and provide input into future content, you can join our free newsletter. Just head to fuelingendurance.com and put your details in there. But today's guest, Al... Yeah, yeah. Today's guest is Nicky Strobel. He's a performance chef who's been working in professional cycling since 2010, originally with the Saxobank team through a Michelin star restaurant he was working with at the time, and then from 2011 with the Australian Green Edge cycling team from their inception. And he was with them all the way through to 2021, planning menus and providing the food for the riders at the Tour de France and other big races on the professional cycling circuit. In 2022, he switched over to the Uno X pro cycling team, and uh, he's just finished up there and moving on to other things now. Now, during this time, Nicky has also completed his university degree, so he's now actually trained as a dietitian as well. And he's been able to combine this work as a chef with his knowledge in sports nutrition to help riders get the most out of their meals. Now, Nicky's been involved in other aspects of food preparation for sport. He was involved in food preparation for the Supernova low-carb, high-fat diet study run at the Australian Institute of Sport with Elite Race Walkers, which we spoke about with our guest, Professor Louise Burke, way back in our very first ever episode of the podcast. And we had the athlete perspective from Evan Dunphy, who was a participant in that study as well. And he talked about, I guess, the, the food that Nikki produced in that study. And as I just mentioned, Nikki's just finished up with UNOX and he's delving more into the, the sports nutrition side of things rather than just the, the chef side of things as his career moves forward. So Nikki's sort of been on our radar for three years now, Steph, as someone we'd always wanted to have a chat to on the podcast. And so with this third anniversary 
edition of the podcast where we do something a little bit different, not looking at a specific sports nutrition question, but looking more at an interesting story or event or project in sports nutrition. We thought it was the perfect opportunity to get Nikki on the podcast and have a chat to him about that. And of course, we had to ask him because we had a listener request about that bus incident at the Tour de France. So we'll ask him about that as well. Awesome. Let's uh, get stuck into it. Yeah, let's do it. All right, Nikki Strobel, welcome to the podcast. How are you going? Thank you very much. Good. You guys? Yeah, very good. Thanks. And i got to say off the top, we've been wanting to chat to you for ages because when we started this podcast three years ago, the first episode we had Louise Burke and she was talking about your involvement in her research. The second episode we did was with Evan Dunphy, who was one of the race walkers who was eating the food that you were preparing, and he mentioned your name. And then the third one we did was with Sam Impey, who was working with you at the time, and he was talking about that as well. So we thought, oh, we've got to speak to Nikki. He keeps coming up in all our podcast episodes. And here we are three years later, and we've, we've got you on. But I guess to, to start off with, I mean, you've worked uh, as a chef, and we'll, we'll talk about, you know, you, you also qualified as a dietitian now as well. But you started working with cycling teams over a decade now, ago now. But I'm curious kind of how you started off in this area because it's obviously a pretty kind of niche area. Were you sort of working as a chef and then just there was a job going in cycling and you ended up in that or were you someone who had wanted to work in sport and then sort of came into it that way? No, so never thought about working in sports. It was purely coincidence. I was working at the Michelin star restaurants at the time, so it was way different compared to what I do now. And a cycling team at that point asked the restaurant I was working at if uh, we could help them out and ended up doing a few races with them. They liked the food and offered me a full year contract in 2011 and left the, the Michelin star kitchens and started working for cycling teams instead. A um, bit, bit different, but yeah, I really enjoyed the change. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And did you have a particular sort of sporting background yourself growing up? No, not like I've always been very keen on sports and been doing pretty much every sport I could possibly do. Used to do sports five days a week after school, everything, swimming, football, tennis, tried pretty much everything. So always stayed active. I'm actually not that big of a sports fan, so I don't watch sports I just enjoy doing sports and and that's one of the things in in cycling a lot of people are like oh you must be so interesting to work with all these like superstars and to be honest when I'm at home I never watch a bike race I would maybe watch the last 10 minutes of, of a race because I'm I'm just not that into it to be honest but I enjoy the other side of the cycling like all the all the aspects going on behind the scenes yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think we'll come to it later on, but I suspect you actually don't get to see much of the race when you're working at a race either, because they're doing their thing out on the road and you're possibly sometimes hundreds of kilometers away preparing food somewhere like the next town they're going to end up at that evening. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those things like a lot of people are like, oh, it must be nice. You know, you get to see all these nice places. And I can tell you one thing, like I haven't seen much of France, even though I've been there probably... <laughs> three four times every year for the past 10 years but yeah i know pretty much every highway in france at this point uh, yeah and every <laughs> gas station along the highway yep yep for sure 
Awesome. Now, some some listeners might recognize your name or, or your voice from your time working, particularly, I guess, because we're an Australian-based podcast with the Green Edge Cycling team. And in particular, I guess, the really popular videos that Dan Jones made you know, in the sort of the early years of, of the team, uh, including obviously the backstage pass videos that were massively popular. And I know you did a series with him about sort of what you were cooking in those early years as well. Thinking back, how do you kind of reflect on that time with the team? I mean, from the outside, it looked like you guys were just having an absolute blast, but I'm guessing there was obviously an awful lot of hard work involved as well. But how do you kind of pull that all together? Uh, it was it was awesome back then. And, you know, it, it's one of those things when you travel on the road with your colleagues and stuff like that, a few of them ends up becoming like really good mates. And especially Dan Jones, like I visited him Every time I'm, I've been in Australia, ever since uh, I was with the team, um, yeah, it's yeah, it, it was. You know, a lot of people describe it as family, but it's not often that you know you do four week grand tour with someone and then you still decide to go and spend another two weeks with them at their house. You know, that sort of says something about the the relationship that was at the team, and it was one of those things. You know, even though. It's long days and you worked hard. Um, it was still enjoyable because everyone had fun and, you know, people really enjoyed being there and they did the best they could uh, with their job and just created an atmosphere where, and I think it also shows in, in the results that the team produced back then, we probably punched way above our weight with, with the results we got compared to the budget that the team had, but everyone just enjoyed being there and I think that sort of really shows that you know sometimes the, the sum of the units are greater than than, than the total or don't know how you say it, but you're like you know what yes, I mean yes like, bigger than the sum of the parts yeah 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 for sure so I, I think that's that's one of the things that was quite unique back then and as you know everyone contributed with something special to that team and were there particular kind of highlights or moments that stand out to you from from your time with the team? I mean, like that, there was a lot of great things that we achieved, and and that sort of happened within the team, and good results and everything. I think one of the things I still remember the best is is probably the day when in in the Giro when Esteban lost the pink jersey, and I think it was mm. like the second last day or something like that. Like. He, even though I don't care about sports and, and stuff like that, I was, it's one of the few times where I've literally been like heartbroken and couldn't, you know, tear up when I saw the guy because it was, you know, that was his big goal and it was sort of in his hands. And then he just lost it at that point. And the whole story about Esteban and, you know, how he evolved with the team and, and, stuff like that it just you know it was things like that that was very special to me even though it wasn't a great result it was actually quite the opposite but uh, it it just showed that you know everyone cared so much like i've never seen mechanics just stand and just stare into the blank because they just yeah didn't know what to do 
So I'm just going to interrupt the podcast very quickly here to just give a quick explanation because those of you very familiar with cycling probably know exactly what Nicky's talking about here with Esteban and everyone else is probably wondering what's going on. So Esteban Chavez is a Colombian cyclist and he started off his career in quite spectacular fashion as an under 23 and then in 2013 had a very, very serious bike accident in a race in Italy and actually completely severed one of the nerves in his arm as part of that. The doctors told him he would never get back to riding professionally ever again. But the Green Edge team that Nicky was working with took a chance on him and signed him in the 2014 season based on his potential. And he certainly integrated into that team very quickly and very successfully. He came across not speaking a word of English, not knowing anything about the Australian culture, but had this really infectious smile and really you know, bought into that team culture and became an integral part of that. And he became known among cycling fans as the Colombian kangaroo. So we fast forward to 2016, this race that Nicky's just described there was the Giro d'Italia, which is sort of the second largest of those big three-week races behind the Tour de France. And Esteban actually took the pink leader's jersey on the third last stage of that race only to lose it on the second last stage of that race and end up second in that event. And it was, a, I guess, a kind of a big redemption story for him coming back from this crash that was sort of career-threatening, being given a lifeline by this Australian team, coming in, really integrating into that culture, becoming a really popular figure within that team and with the fans of the team, and then coming so close to getting that win at the Giro d'Italia. Now, the next story that Nicky's referring to here he refers to Simon, and that is Simon Gerrans. So he's another rider from the Green Edge team, in this case an Australian rider, a very successful rider, one of our most successful of that generation. And he's talking about here winning a race called Liège Baston Liège, which is the oldest single-day cycling race in the world and one of the most prestigious of the one-day cycling races called the Classics. So I'll head back to Nicky now. And then there's obviously like all the great results we had over the years, uh, especially I think when, when Simon won Liege, Bastogne Liege, that was quite special too, you know, we're in the same hotel for two weeks leading up to the race, everyone is there, we had great fun and then, you know, Simon was always one of the guys, we had fun up until like the day before and then he switched on and then he was really switched on, so. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a typical Australian kind of trait. Yeah, and I think it's great because, you know, it's sort of, you don't need to be focused all the time, but, mm. you know, it's it's good when someone can actually switch on and, and get the results done. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, like, Liege Bass on Liege comes right at the end of that whole intense yeah. period of classics. It's kind of like the last one as yeah. well. Yeah. 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 Now... I have to ask this from your time at Green Edge because we've seen a few perspectives on, on YouTube over the years at the bus incident. Someone asked me the other day when I said I was going to speak to you, they said, you have to ask him about the bus incident. So this was for, for listeners, stage one of the 2013 Tour de France. Many cycling fans out there will remember it very well because the Green Edge bus got wedged under the finish line gantry and they had to reroute the finish of the race and there were crashes and there was absolute chaos and this bus was stuck under the thing. Obviously, you probably weren't in the bus or around it at the time. You were probably off somewhere else making food. But what was your perspective on it? How did you find out about this whole whole schmuzzle? Yeah, so it's it's quite an interesting story because so normally what happens is that the finish line, the gantry over the finish line is normally 
higher before they actually make it to the finish. So all the buses can go under, all the like vehicles that are in front of the race can go under. And then when they get closer to the finish, they sort of lower it for the TV pictures and everything. So all the other team buses had already passed under and our bus went directly to our hotel uh, because the hotel was just down the road. And then last minute, our general manager, Shane Bannon, called the bus driver and he was like, no, no, we need the bus at the finish line because Jerry's here, so we need the bus so we can watch the race and stuff like that. And so our bus driver jumped in the bus and drove back. And to be fair, it wasn't his fault. Like some of the policemen there guided him back through the finish line and he was like, no, it doesn't fit. And they just waved him on. And then chaos just hit and i felt so sorry like you can see the tv pictures where uh, gary our bus driver he's just like in the bus burying his head in his hands yeah but yeah it was a it was a few intense moment like everyone at the hotel and everyone was just following because it was it was one of those things where you know it, it could potentially ruin the whole well it sort of ruined the finish for some teams but luckily they got it out and i think after a few days, we could all laugh about it. But yeah, at, at that point, it was a bit intense. But I think uh, the, the best thing is that Jerry, the owner of the team, he just looked at it and like, it's the best publicity we could possibly get. If we didn't win the stage, at least we were on TV for the majority of the time at the at the finish. Uh, so, you know, always look at the bright side, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That that sounds exactly like Jerry Ryan. <laughs> and and we, you presumably were back at the hotel. Did you have like a TV on in the background or something and see what was going on? Yeah, when, when you're at the hotel, you sort of like, if there's a TV signal, you watch it on your phone or just mm. have it in the background, have a live ticker up or something like that. And then you watch the last 10K or something like that. Mm. So, but also I our WhatsApp group at that point went a bit hectic because everyone was trying to figure out what was happening and did they move the finish line or is it still at the actual finish line? Did they shorten the race? So, but it was, it was an interesting day. And then luckily after that, we had a few good days where we ended up with the yellow jersey and, and everything went well. So I think if we didn't have a great two after that, it could have been you know, people would just have remembered that one. But luckily, you know, we got the yellow jersey. Simon had it for a few days and then Daryl had it for a few days. So it ended up being sort of a, a positive instead of being, you know, something negative. And now it's just a, a funny story. Yeah, exactly right. Now, a few years ago, you made the move from Green Edge over to the, you know, X team over in a Norwegian team. How do you find changing teams in terms of like, the culture of the team obviously yeah green edge certainly as an outsider you get a sense of the culture of that team is you know what you know you've already described going to a different team is it like wow this is completely different or is it just like yeah it's pretty much the same they just wear different colors it's at least for me it was completely different because i was at green edge for that long and when you travel around most of the times you have like you know your your roommates that you normally share the room with uh, so i shared with a guy called andy for a few years and you know not for a few years for eight or nine years and we ended up having kids at the same time and and those things so we sort of you know 
had had our families at the same time. So changing changing teams were a lot different, and also the Norwegian and Danish sort of culture mentality is is way different than Australian. And in, in Denmark, we normally say that you know if if Danish people have a few beers, then they're a bit more like Australians. We're more open and we start talking. So, uh, but can't do that all the time when we're on the road. So a lot of the times, you know, it's it's a bit more quiet and, and people a bit more serious all the time compared to found with Australians. A lot of the times it's sort of an on-off. But in general, you know, like all the practical stuff and all the logistics and everything like that, that's pretty much the same for every team in the world tour. So it, it's more about the people around the team that was a big change but from the practical side you know my job didn't change uh, that much now we were speaking actually we mentioned off air before we were just speaking last night to louise burke and she was in our first ever episode and our second ever episode was race walker evan dunphy and he was a participant in louise's supernova studies now they both mentioned that you actually came down here to Canberra and were actually involved in in preparing the food for the the supernova study, which for for listeners who aren't aware was sort of comparing a, a traditional, I guess, high carbohydrate approach to a um, a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. Was that something that when they asked you to come down here and like prepare all this food, and then they're like, "I mean, we want you to prepare this like really high fat, low carb diet." Were you like, "What on earth are these people doing?" Like, what was your reaction to all of this? Yeah, it was it was quite interesting because at first when we said like oh, it's going to be like high fat low carb diet, I was like, yeah, sure, you know that's pretty simple. But then when you have to hit a target of eighty percent of your energy coming from fat, then all of a sudden it it's not that easy. Like when you I remember one of the days they had like a cauliflower pizza with some avocado topping and stuff like that, and even you know adding a few cherry tomatoes on top it ended up putting them over the top with carbs so it was like it was so limited with the things we had and also we tried to sort of keep the menus similar so that you know when the high carb group had pasta the low carb group they had like a zucchini pasta instead so we tried to keep everything as close to each other as we could, but it was just some of the stuff were, oh, some of the stuff didn't taste that great. Let's just put it <laughs> that way. I remember like there was the, the infamous fat bombs they were called, which were essentially just coconut oil. I think it was like coconut oil, butter, and some lemon peel. So it was just a lemon flavored fat they were eating. And and to, to start with, I was like, you know, yeah, it might work. But then as soon as we started testing, there was uh, we had this Polish guy in the study and he was in the low carb group and he did, I think it was like a 50K walk one day, ended up passing out as he crossed the finish line. And, you know, it was just, I was like, whoo, maybe this isn't that good. And, you know, people started getting rashes and stuff like that so it was it was an interesting 
experience but i would say from a food perspective it's definitely not my finest moment <laughs> i mean i guess it's one of those you know it's one of those things that are really challenge you as a chef is like having to conform to such a strict set of criteria that is so different to what you're used to yeah and i mean like especially with the with the high fat diet because it's you know like it's one of those things everything has carbs in it except for you know a few things that you can use but when you're so restricted like i think if i remember correctly the maximum intake was like less than 50 grams of carbs per day and i mean like at that point you know you're struggling with getting even basic vegetables in that people would normally classify as low carb vegetables Mm -hmm. so it was it was definitely a challenge but I mean, it was also super interesting to see and to see how people actually reacted to it. And it was one of those things, you know, it's, it was so nice to be part of that whole group at the AIS. Like everyone yeah. was super committed and it was, it was just good fun. So really enjoyed it there. But I would say that the food were, that the high carb diet was fine because that was, you know, what I'm used to doing, but the, the, high fat diet was was a bit of a challenge yeah yeah fair enough so most people would see the work that chefs like yourself have done in pro cycling at the big three-week tours in may july and august but what's your involvement been throughout the rest of the year would you attend the shorter stage races too So, yeah, do you also work with the team around those busy weeks of the one-day spring classics in March and April? Yeah, so it uh, it sort of depends on on the different teams. I would say most teams would bring chefs for, like, the week-long races that starts in March. So it would be, like, Pyrenees, Tirreno, Adriatico, and then they would. Some teams would bring chefs for the classics, depending on where you're staying, because you're staying in the same hotel for three weeks. Uh, a lot of the times, you can get sort of uh, a good deal with the hotel where they will actually allocate a chef specifically to your group, and you have more freedom to work directly with that chef. Other teams rent out just big guest houses and bring chefs and cook for everyone there. So it's a bit individual with the teams, but my role over the past few years has also been more about like doing educational stuff for writers when they're at home. So it's it's a bit of a mix, but most of the times at, at this point, teams are bringing a chef to pretty much every race during the year and training camps. So most of the time it will be training camp in... December, then training camp in January, February, there might be like altitude camp down in Sierra Nevada, South Africa, something like that. And then the races starts in March and then they keep on going all the way up until October. So it's a full year at this point. And with the, with races being more and more competitive, teams are bringing sort of the biggest setup to every race at this point so we're doing a lot of races outside the grand tours i would say one of the most important periods is probably the classics just because it's 
such a different demand in, in energy on, on those days. Like you would have a race day could be 6,000 calorie day on the bike. And then you would have a rest day that would be maybe one hour easy spin on the bike. So it's a big fluctuation in, in energy needs on, on those days, which can be hard for, for riders to match. Uh, see a lot of riders who end up gaining quite a bit of weight because they over overeat on, on the easy days, maybe to compensate for the harder days. Do you find then, Nikki, that your role a little bit then is to try and help, I guess, cushion that in terms of, you know, trying to really bulk out the meals when they don't need those calories and then trying to really compact it down mm-hmm. when they have those big sort of 6,000 calorie days. So you can kind of adjust, I guess, the difference between the volume of food versus the calories of food, what we call the energy density, I guess, for for the, the dietitians listening to, to try and compensate for that so the riders don't have to think too much about it or have big ups and downs in terms of appetite and hunger? Yeah, that was it was definitely something that we've focused a lot on in, in the classics. Like you said, having easy days where you would do foods that's less dense in energy so they could still eat the same quantity just because they're used to eating big quantities so it doesn't really work if, you know, one day you serve them a tiny meal because it's an easy day. So you sort of need to adjust the food so they can have roughly the same amounts of, of actual food on the different days. Um, and that's that's something that, you know, writers are obviously more educated now, but it's still one of those things, you know, hunger is just such a big driver. So if you end up being hungry at a hotel, you eat whatever is put in front of you because you just feel hungry yeah. and at that point you don't really think about energy uh, intake you just think about I'm, I'm hungry I need food yeah and, and when you're starting out like you know as you said like you didn't come from a background in nutrition and you, you've since sort of done done training in that space but at the start of that was there someone there to kind of guide you, like someone from the team, nutritionist or someone to kind of sit there and go, you know, this is what we need in terms of, you know, more calories, bulking it out here, you know, making it more energy dense there? Did you kind of have to figure that out for yourself or how did that work out? When I first started in cycling, everything went through the doctor. The doctor was the coach, the nutritionist, the psychologist, like the doctor was everything. So at that point, it was the the doctor sort of, you know, doing recommendations and different doctors had different ideas and sports nutrition was still sort of a niche area that wasn't really explored in cycling. Slowly over the years, it's developed, but you know, it's one of those things when I first started, yeah, the, the doctor would prescribe something. And then, you know, if it was an Italian doctor, then, you know, they needed red meat because of the iron. And if it was a, I had a doctor that was like, you can't serve beans, but they have to be boiled with like different seaweeds and, and stuff. I, 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 you just get these weird ideas. And then there's obviously also the writers themselves that, you know, get influenced by everything, especially like with the high fat craze that was at one point, you know, I had writers who tried to write uh, a classic stage. I can't remember what race it were, but who did like a low carb breakfast before five hour race. So it was one of those things. It, it's evolved over the years. And that's also why I did my studies because I saw there was, there was a need for educated, you know, 
nutritionist coming into the sport and actually someone with a background that was a bit more driven by science rather than being, you know, I heard this story about someone and I saw this on Netflix or whatever. And do you get to know the the other chefs from the other teams and kind of swap stories and ideas or is it all pretty competitive and you stick to yourselves? No, I think in, in cycling in, in general, everything that happens off the bike, we're trying to help each other out because it's, you know, we change hotels pretty much every day. And if you need something from someone, it's always good to, you know, have friends on the other teams and make sure you're on other teams' good side, especially with chefs and stuff like when you're in the kitchens and if you need something or if you are missing something, then people are always helping out. So I think among the the staff outside the, the race, it's it's pretty friendly and everyone is trying to help each other out. And I know a lot of the chefs personally and you know worked with a few of them it's also one of those sports people change teams but they're sort of always around so you know former teammates will be at a different team and and stuff like that but yeah you always try to help each other out Mm. yep yep and for those listeners who aren't uh, aware the the big three-week races are a bit of a traveling circus with the stage usually starting and finishing in different towns and then often you've got the long bus transfers occasionally even a, a flight and that goes to the town where the next stage starts can you explain to the listeners what the usual daily routine looks like for the riders in a grand tour and then what your routine looks like in contrast so if we start off with the riders, they would normally wake up and, and have their breakfast around nine o'clock, uh, depending on the start time. Normally we like to have you know, breakfast done around three hours before the start, four to three hours before the start. And then depending on the transfer, they would go on uh, the bus where they you know, have their seats and everything and they can get changed, drive to the start area, where they then have to do a presentation normally. So they have to get up on a stage and, you know, wave to everyone and take some pictures. Uh, And then they would do the race. And uh, after the race, it's back on the bus where they can have a shower, get changed again. And then it would often be a one to two hour drive to the hotel. And then when they arrive at the hotel, they'll get a massage um, and, after the massage, they'll come down and have dinner, relax a bit, and then go to sleep and start again the next day. So it's it's one of those, you know, when they're at the race, there's so many hours where they're actually doing things other than riding their bike. Um, yeah, and then for, for the staff, it's from, from my side, it's normally quite an early start. I would normally start two hours before they have their breakfast, you know, prepare their breakfast in the morning. After they're done with breakfast, pack everything up and they get our cars ready to go. And then the drive to the next hotel can be anything from an hour. And then the longest days are probably like five hour transfer. Um, and then 
I normally like to stop along the way at markets and get everything I need for the dinner that night. Arrive at the, the new hotel and find out where everything is, you know, get organized, where do we have power, water, the dining room. And then often I have like a one to two hour break in the middle of the day where I can go for a run or something like that. And then it's start preparing dinner, get everything ready for dinner, uh, and then serve dinner normally around between eight and nine at night and pack up and then repeat the next day. So a, a lot of the time, you know, like even though I'm a chef, it's probably, probably spent five to six hours in a kitchen every day. The rest of the time is just everything around, like sourcing ingredients, making sure our vehicles are okay, washing vehicles, um, dealing with hotels, getting set up and, and everything like that. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff happening outside the kitchen too. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so let's go back now to when you first started in the sport. It seems to me that the use of team chefs and kitchen trucks and everything really only got started in the mid late 2000s with a couple of the bigger teams, but then kind of spread throughout the the sport. Did you have any experience or hear from others who were there before you? from those earlier days and what it was like feeding teams prior to about 2010? So I, I started in 2010 with the, it was called Saxo Bank at the time. And uh, I think it was the only ones that had a chef there was like Saxo Bank. Uh, that was when uh, Sky started. So they had a chef there too, but we would maybe be three or four chefs no one had a kitchen van or anything like that. It was everyone in the kitchen of the hotel fighting for, you know, their little spot in the hotel. And then it slowly evolved. And it's, you know, in the last, say, four years, it's really accelerated. It, it went from teams having one chef maybe covering few races in the spring, the grand tours, and then that was it to it being all teams having at least two chefs covering pretty much every race. So there's, in, I would say like the, in the last four years, it's, it's definitely accelerated the focus on nutrition and the focus on food compared to what it were before. It might just be that, you know, we sort of exploited all the other gains we could get and now we sort of, you know, food is is the the next one that we can that we can get. Even though I probably prefer to have it as food as one of the main gains, and then you can look at aerodynamics and stuff like that at a later point down the road. But it's it's definitely changed compared to back then. Like then, it was a chef were there to make sure riders didn't get sick where now a chef is there to make sure that the riders get the proper nutrition. So the, the role of the chef has changed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And with the increase in chefs, has there also been a change in like nutritionists and dietitians as well with the teams or? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think nutritionists, dietitians also only started like, four, maybe five years ago to really come into the scene. And I think it was one of those things, you know, one of the 
bigger teams did it and then everyone else saw that you know they actually benefited from it and then everyone just jumped on the wagon and you know everyone wanted to get a, a nutritionist on board you know it's it was a bit frustrating seeing since you know me and um, a guy called Mark Quad who was uh, at Green Edge we sort of really tried to push nutrition hard in in the, those early days and no one really bought in you know some of the sports directors were a bit like is it really necessary you know when back when we raced our bikes we would just get up in the morning have a steak and then uh, straight on the bike but then you know it, as soon as other teams started getting results everyone just sort of saw the light Mm. I was going to say, I, I kind of, I've mentioned to a few people kind of like the Team Sky effect. It was like after they won, what was it, five tours in a row or whatever yeah. it is, or five in six years, everyone was kind of getting sick of them winning all the time. It's sort of, well, what are they doing? We should do the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I com- completely agree with that one. It was, they, they were definitely main driver for, especially with the, the nutrition side of things. And then at this point, it's probably more uh, Jumbo Visma, I think they just changed their name, but yeah, Jumbo yeah. Visma. And when you got started in, in cycling, I imagine that working with a team that's constantly traveling around for a stage race is a very different environment to what you'd be used to training as a chef, maybe in a restaurant where you're always in the same kitchen with the same food supplies. Was that tricky to adjust to at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, like at, at the beginning, it was very hard for me, especially because I'm trained in restaurants that only use ingredients from uh, Scandinavia. So when I did my first training camp in Spain and I saw like a capsicum, I was like, ooh, what do we do with this one? Like other than just <laughs> to cut it up and throw it in a salad. But, you know, it, it was one of those things. It was definitely a learning experience for me just to, get out of my normal comfort zone where I had everything and, and be a bit more flexible with what you can get. It's it's one of those, you know, a lot of people, they like to plan out their menu and have everything. And, you know, they do shopping lists and everything where I found it's it's just a waste of time because you'll show up at the, at the market and then, you know, you plan out for salmon and they don't have any salmon or the salmon they have is not looking fresh. So, you know, I, I really learned to adapt to things and, and the same way, like you turn up at a ski chalet up in, in the mountains and the kitchen they have is essentially just a microwave and a single stove. So, you know, it, yeah, you, you sort of learn to adapt and really uh, get creative with some of the things. But, you know, I, I think that's also one of the things I really like about the job is that it's it's that challenge and you have to sort of think on your feet because you never know what you're going to get. And I mean, it could be, you know, we have days where we stay in a big fancy castle where the kitchen is similar to what I, I'm used to from Denmark, where it would be, you know, all the best ovens and everything was just spotless. And then the next day you'll be in a kitchen where, you know, I've seen kitchens that were so dirty that we had to sort of wash the area we worked in before you could even prepare any food. 
it's different compared to being in the same kitchen every day, but I quite like those challenges. Mm, yeah. And I think one of the other things that people probably don't appreciate, even if they see the tour or events like that on TV, is like these places that you're staying, it's not like you're staying in big capital cities where there's a supermarket on every corner. These are like small towns and villages in the countryside. So I'm guessing after a few years, you kind of find your way around when you go to the same places over and over again. But just even working out where you're going to source ingredients from is a bit of a challenge, particularly in the beginning when you haven't been there before. Yeah. I think I think that was probably the hardest and, and just being I don't know how it is in, in Australia now, but here in, in Denmark and Norway everything is open on a Sunday. But when you arrive to Spain or France, <clears throat> everything is closed on a Sunday. And you know, when you're not used to that, you sort of have to think ahead and get everything sorted. It, it's little things like that and, and just yeah, like you said, the towns we stay in a lot of the times, it's we actually don't stay in the city center also because we have, you know, big trucks and buses and stuff. So we need a bit more parking space uh, compared to, you know, a normal hotel guest. So th- there's a lot of, lot of weird places I've seen over the time and seen, you know, some of the worst hotels that are probably in France and also seen some of the better ones there. But I think a lot of people they see, you know, it's it's this fancy sport and we must stay at, you know, luxurious hotels every day. I'll say probably the hotels we stay the most at is a chain called Campanile, which is a very budget chain of hotels. It's very basic the hotels that we stay at. Um whenever we get like a four star hotel, it's it's a treat. Yeah. Mm. Do do you know if the women's teams are starting to get this kind of setup now as well in terms of chefs? They're definitely getting more and more support and also with the chefs. I've done a few races with the the women from the Green Edge team and, you know, it was one of those things. It was such a nice experience because they just appreciate it so much because they're used to having a chef there, whereas the, the men at this point, they're a bit a bit spoiled and they sort of expect there to be a chef. So it's something that's definitely getting a, a bigger focus, you know, especially at the bigger races they're doing. But it's it's still like women's cycling is still quite small compared to, to men's cycling. So they, they don't get the same level of support yet. But I think in the last three, four years, it's gotten way better than it, it were before. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, let's talk a bit more about the nutrition side of things now and, and I guess how that then translates into the, the food that's actually being prepared and, and served to riders. And, you know, I think we talked about before, like in the early days, there wasn't a lot of knowledge in the nutrition area and obviously that was something that you felt that you needed to get involved with because there wasn't much happening kind of around the teams. Was that difficult in those early days to kind of translate the nutrition side of things into to food was that something that was a bit of a steep learning curve i mean like at at the start when i first started it was it was pretty hard especially because everything was driven from the doctor and a lot of the times it was you know this weird supplement or something like that that they wanted to incorporate into the food so it could be like we had a doctor who wanted to uh, can't remember it was like a amino acid that he wanted in a drink before bedtime and it it just 
tasted bad like it but i mean like if if that's your focus on nutrition is this one little thing they have to drink before bed it, it seemed like back then it was because it was driven by doctors it was a lot of focus on on sort of stuff that weren't really food it was more supplements that they wanted to incorporate into the food because you know when you actually break it down, you know, the, the food that we prepare for the writers is quite simple. It's a lot of pasta. It's a lot of rice. It's food that you can make really tasty. And it's just the basic things that they essentially need when they're on the bike. Like, you know, you can make so many nice desserts and cakes and stuff like that because they just need carbs. Once you actually have sort of the basic knowledge, it's quite simple to translate it into food. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of the times, you know, the basic knowledge is often forgotten. People are sort of always chasing the high-end stuff rather than getting all the basics right first, because it's just not, you know, and it's probably also because a lot of people want to, you know, sell something or you know, show that they're special because there's nothing special about pasta, but you know, end of the day, that's probably more important than taking a supplement uh, is just to, to get the basics right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a good message for, for listeners doing their own cooking and, and food prep at home as well, just in terms of, you know, getting those basics right in terms of protein, carbohydrate, etc., rather than chasing your, your pills and potions and that sort of thing. I'm curious how your approach to, I guess, what you prepare or how you prepare food for riders has changed over the decade or so that you've been working in the sport. Obviously, I assume things have kind of evolved over that time in terms of your own approach. What what sort of things have, have changed from your perspective? I think over the years, it's definitely become a larger focus on carbs compared to what it were before. Uh, like I mentioned before, in the start, chefs were more there to make sure that riders didn't get sick compared to actually enhancing performance. Whereas now it's, you know, everything is is performance driven, everything we do in cycling. So I think at this point, it's it's not really, it hasn't changed a lot, but the focus is definitely changed more towards carbs in general. And back then, you know, it was more about being healthy and things like that where now we sort of figured out you can be healthy and still get a large amount of carbs and actually perform better instead of, you know, people before eating way more vegetables and salad and stuff like that, which is quite good. But you have to also remember these guys are not your average person. So you have to really think differently. And I think it's something that we still, when we get young guys in, you know, they drastically under fuel because they sort of see guidelines for general population and then we sort of try and push them more towards you know you're not general population you have to eat different and that that's something that you know has gotten a bigger focus in the time that I worked in cycling and it's it's you know even now in the last three years the amount of carbs that riders eating at this point is is gone drastically up yeah yeah and, and i think it's one of those things as you said for like young riders like you have all the food set out on the table and you've got 
you know, you know, meat or chicken or something like that. And then you've got veggies and salads that are all prepared really nicely. And then you've got the pasta and rice and things. And I guess part of that is also education around that is like you've got all of these things, but you need to get the proportions of these right also. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. And we spoke to Sam Impey right back at the start of the podcast, episode 2A, and obviously he and, and yourself were, were working together at Green Edge at that time. And, and he talked about, I guess, at that point, starting to use some of the data that was collected from the riders in terms of power meter data and that kind of thing, in terms of how many calories they expended on the bike. And, and I guess, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, a stage can look a certain way on paper, but tactically how it plays out, you know, someone could burn you know 6,000 calories in a day or 2,000 depending on how the stage plays out and their their role in that as well and and starting to really look at kind of adjusting people's nutrition based on the feedback from the data did you find that easy or difficult to kind of translate into food does it kind of change what you're doing in terms of the types of food you're preparing or is it more just about educating the rise on okay this is the quantities of each thing that you need tonight I think that, you know, first of all, it, it definitely got more data-driven over over the past few years. I think at this point, every team is using some type of data from the bike and translating it into amounts of food or some recommendations at least. <clears throat> but for me, the, the actual food that I prepare, I would normally look at the stage beforehand and sort of estimate if it's going to be a hard or an easy stage it's, it's one of those things when they finish the stage i'm already well into preparing the food so it's it's pretty pretty hard to adjust but then you know you make little changes add extra things and it's also one of the things you know I remember one year in the tour we had luke durbridge was in a breakaway i think he had like one of his biggest days it was like close to seven thousand calories and then you have another guy who is just sitting in the back of the bunch who probably burned half of, of the calories. Uh, so how do you sort of accommodate that within the same meal? And I think it's, it's one of those things because we don't serve them. You know, I normally serve things as a buffet where they can pick and choose themselves. And so giving recommendations for, for that, amount of work they did is pretty easy for them to sort of hit their targets because they have multiple options and especially now when you know they're more educated we have nutritionists who are giving them info every day it's it's easier for them was a bit of a problem earlier when you would have writers come in and they would just look at what's happening in the next day and not account for the day that they just did so you could have guys coming in from one of the hardest stages of the tour and then they would see the next day is a pretty flat stage and then they would just have a few potatoes for for dinner and then that would be it so i think it's it's very beneficial that we have that data now and it's more data driven because even very experienced riders will just drastically under fuel if if they're just not informed about what's happening. I guess it's it's that, you know, it's always a fear in cycling about becoming overweight and gaining too much weight and stuff like that. So it's 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 always that that balance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And 
do you get involved in terms of preparing food for riders that, that they could take on the bike and have you know during the stage rather than just having you know gels and bars and sort of prepackaged things as well? I used to in in the past doing like rice cakes or baked banana bread and stuff like that, but the the way that cycling has evolved at this point, it used to be you know the breakaway would right away and then it would be you know 100k easy rolling and then they would start chasing but cycling now is just a different sport where it's it's pretty much full gas from the start till finish so a, a lot of the times eating call it real food now is is not an option so everything have to be either drinks or gels stuff like that so it's it's less now for training and stuff like that, I would sometimes prepare, you know, like rice cakes, uh, granola bars or something like that. But in, in the actual race, the amount of food that the riders are eating is is minimal at this point, just because they don't really have the, the time to eat uh, anything other than, you know, proper sports foods. Yeah, yeah. And are the riders, like, because of that, are the riders reporting differences in terms of, you know, like gut issues, for example, because, the, you know, they're, they're full gas, they're, they're not getting as much, I guess, kind of easy riding, so to speak, uh, or, or because of, I guess, the, the different types of foods and, and products they're having to have? Are you, you noticing a trend in, in those sorts of issues? No, it's, it's actually gotten better over the last few years, I would say, especially with the development in sports products just because they've gotten so much better compared to what they were before. Uh, it, it used to be, you know, eat this, and if you don't really tolerate it, eh, not really our problem. So it's it's gotten a lot better over the years, and I think, you know, stomach issues has been drastically reduced just because the the companies that produce the sports drinks and gels and stuff like that has gotten so much better at it Mm -hmm. i wonder too whether also you know you mentioned the fact that there's a lot more focus on carbs whether they're just their guts are better trained to tolerate that because they're doing it more frequently in training as well like they're actually getting in more carbs during training and that's setting them up for a better gut on race day as well yeah, I think that's definitely uh, contributing to it. Also, also because training now, you know, it used to be, you know, people would go on a five-hour ride and not really eat during that ride, where you just can't really do that anymore because your training have to be efficient every day you go out. Otherwise, you're not able to keep up with everyone else. Uh, so even even feeding in, in training has become a, a big focus at this point. Yep. And in terms of like the food that you're preparing when the guys are on a tour, is there been a change in focus on things like you know fiber content, FODMAP content, those kind of things, again, to try and make it easier on, on the gut during a stage race or not particularly? Yeah, there's, there's, been, uh, there's been some focus on it. Um, you know, some teams will actually do like a full grand tour with a, a low residue diet and you would see people just chucking down the prune juice at dinner because they might have some problems with their with their with their guts but i think it's you know it's something that's definitely focused on the approach that i've been using with the teams i've been with has always been more sort of a periodized approach where you know you look at the hard days key days that you wanted to go low residue and then you would sort of get some fibers back in so you actually still get some 
you know, even though fibers are bad for performance, they're still quite good for everything else. You know, you've got bacteria, your immune system and everything else that sort of is important in a grand tour too. Three weeks is a long time. Three weeks is a long time and it's a, it's a long time being constipated for three weeks, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Now we spoke to to James Moran, who you've you've worked with as well in episode thirteen A of the podcast, and he mentioned, I guess, that the riders have over the course of those three week tours, you know, they get a bit of a change in terms of their preferences for food textures, sweetness. He, he said it was more not so much the sweetness that got to them, but more the lack of variety in texture on the bike. And I'm guessing from what you're saying, it's now it's just like well bad luck you've got to get the carbs in let's just you know it's gels and drinks anyway I, I he was sort of talking to us a couple of years ago and he was saying you know the guys really want something with a bit of crunch in it on the bike are you are you kind of getting that that feedback as well and does that translate into also the, the types of foods that you're preparing off the bike do they kind of change over the course of three weeks because the rider preferences tend to change over the course of a tour yeah, so for, for the stuff on the bike, I definitely think you're right that, you know, they they miss some consistency and just that, you know, if you've ever done a long training session or race where you use just gels and drinks, it, it's just a sort of get this empty feeling in your gut and you just, it just feels weird if you're not used to it. I think at this point, they all just had to get used to it because it's such a big part of, of racing now. But, you know, as, as soon as they come off the bike, anything that has, you know, texture or just something different than that sort of sweet, even though we use a lot of unflavored stuff now, it still has that sort of sweet mouthfeel to it. And you just, yeah, you just get sick of it uh, at the end. So what, what we do with the food is that we really try to, over a three-week race, we, you know, start off with things that are pretty simple, and then we sort of ramp it up and you know introduce little things. So you know, end of a grand tour, we'll do like uh, cinnamon rolls for breakfast, just you know something different, but you know you still get the carbs and everything in them, and change dinners. So we try and you know mix it up a bit and get something especially when I worked with Green Edge, you know, food culture in Australia is a bit of a mix of everything. So it used to be a mix of curries, uh, even made the chicken parmi a few times because that was a request from one of the writers. But, you know, we, we try to change it up. And I think that's also one of the reasons why you would bring a chef to a, a grand tour because, to be honest, the food that the staff eat it's pretty much the same for three weeks. And even though France, they're very good at food, they're not very good at pasta. Pasta <laughs> is something different in France. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I can, and I think James was talking about this last time too. Like some of the riders just, like as you said, like it can be four, five, 6,000 calories a day. They just get sick of eating and like just the motivation to eat wanes. And so you've really got to make it more and more and more enticing as the race goes on by the sound of it. Yeah, and and I think you know it, it also changes a lot through a race where you know end of the race you would add different juices and stuff like that for the dinner just to make sure you actually get people to eat. But I think one of the the main things is that you know we 
we can change the food and make it different, taste different every day. It was quite quite interesting after this grand tour I did the Tour de France this summer. And one of the writers, he was like, it's, it's the first Tour de France I've ever done where I actually, I'm not sick of eating, like I just want to eat more. So that, that was quite good that we actually managed to to do that and i would say also james is super good with you know coming up with little sort of treats and stuff after after the race so instead of just having to eat rice and pasta you know they get little different things so he you know find different cakes and things that he gives them instead of just being plain rice and pasta yeah and so without naming names, what's the strangest request you've had from a rider in terms of food and nutrition? I think uh, with, with the nutrition, it was an Australian guy who asked me if he could please get the, the gluten-free rice because, you know, he, <laughs> he felt like, you know, gluten really made him retain water. Yep. Um, so, so not not glutinous rice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, yeah, I just had to shake my head and just yeah, yeah <laughs> whatever. And I worked with a Belgian writer, and I can mention his name. Like I know he's not getting offended or anything, but I worked with uh, Jens Kuckler, who uh, mm-hmm. wrote with Green Edge. Yeah, and he would make these epic breakfast sandwich kind of things, and it was just. We like it used to be bread with fried eggs, and then he would add, you know, a bit of banana on top, then some jam, a few slices of ham. It was essentially just like a breakfast, everything rolled into one sandwich. Yeah, so uh, I think that would probably be the, the two weirdest ones. And then you know, had requests for uh, also, I think, in the in the Giro one year. A big request where a lot of the guys were starting to get like an itchy throat. So one of the guys came up with this thing, like he wanted um, garlic and honey every breakfast. So like just prepare like a glass of honey with garlic in and he would just eat that for his breakfast Mm -hmm. every morning. (laughs) Um, So yeah, people come up with some, (laughs) some, some special things like that Euro, they were eating so much garlic. So other teams were starting to complain. Yeah. Yes, I remember this. It made into the videos. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were just every meal were just, you know, it sort of became a competition. So I was going through I think like <laughs> ten whole bobs of garlic every day. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> and um do do you get involved with writers in terms of teaching them to cook or how to plan and prepare the food? at home when they're not in a race yeah so that's uh, that's one of the things that we really tried to push over the last few years because just because riders are maybe racing 80 days in a year and rest of the times they're at home so we really try to do a lot of educational stuff around that so i spent quite a bit of time with riders either we did like a camp setup where they would do a mini camp and I would be there and teaching them about, you know, food and what to go to the supermarket and get. And I have to remember a lot of these guys, you know, they, especially the Australian guys, they come here to Europe when they're like 
very early 20s and have to live away from home, completely new country, everything is new. So a lot of the times they end up getting the foods that they know from home, which a lot of the times are not the best quality foods just because, you know, big brands all over the world. So we've done a lot of a lot of educational stuff with writers over the last few years. And I, I really quite enjoy that role just because you feel like you're actually impacting them in, in a different way than, you know, just feeding them when they're at a race and getting them to understand the just just understanding the basics is is quite satisfying. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And any common mistakes you've heard of in terms of how athletes approach their own food prep when they don't have your services available to them or when maybe they haven't, you know, kind of nudged to the advice that you have been giving them? I, I think the, the biggest one is probably just, you know, using salt and things. A lot of people just don't use salt and they're like, oh, it's, it's not good for you, which is, you know, excessive amounts is not good mm. but just mm. adding a bit of salt to your things will change your food drastically i think that's probably probably the biggest thing and then another one is just how simple you can actually make it like you can make a really good meal with a microwave in five ten minutes it doesn't have to be fancy and spectacular every time mm. yep yep and we mentioned before that you're now also trained as a dietitian. Is this an area you'd like to move into in the future or you're already doing? Yeah, so I sort of gradually moved from the kitchen more into the nutrition side of things. Uh, I still quite enjoy, you know, doing races doing the food because you just get a more like hands-on experience with the guys and and those things but yeah spent quite a bit of time at, at university over the last few years and done my dietetics and and stuff like that and it's it's an area that i really like to work in and also found that especially when i did my work with Luis and stuff it was quite useful to having a lot of practical skills uh, and mm. the same when I do consultations with writers and stuff like that you know I don't have to think about different foods and stuff mm. I can easily come up with with foods and and sort of adjust it to to their needs all right well we're going to finish off now Nikki with our quick little bonus round where we're going to find out a little bit more about you rather than necessarily the, the work that you do <laughs> So the first question, and I think this is a question that applies to any profession, but obviously in, in your case, it's around food. How do you cook for yourself at home? Is it completely different to how you'd cook as a chef for work or is it similar? It's it's very similar. I have two small kids and uh, they really enjoy pasta and rice. So uh, a lot of a lot of pasta and rice for those two. But it's it's very similar. When I get home from work, the first thing my missus tell me is, good, you're home now. Like I've been preparing food for the last few weeks. So now I can take some time off and you can work. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Completely different to cooking, I think, probably. One of the things on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Outside like sports and professionally, just like anything or? Yeah. 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 Yep. 
I think that's one of the things I really regret not doing when I was in Australia. I want to dive the Great Barrier Reef. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. I'll hopefully get a chance to come back here at some stage and, and do that. The favorite place to travel, I'm guessing maybe holidays because you've done an awful lot of travel from work and you're probably sick of seeing hotels and highways, as you said before. Yeah, I think it would actually have to be in in Australia and especially we stayed up in Bright quite a few times, mm. yeah. snowy mountains, yeah. awesome place and, you know, it, it's sort of perfect. Australia, it's summer when it's winter here, and I've really enjoyed my time up there. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And by the time the listeners hear this, it'll be over, but actually this weekend is the Tour of Brighton. There's a domestic cycling race up there this weekend, and I think half the Australian cycling community is up there training at the moment from, from what I've seen talking to people over the last week or so. Favourite sporting moment from 2023? Doesn't have to be cycling necessarily. Yeah, that, that's a hard one because I'm not really that interesting in, yeah. interested in sport, like I mentioned before. Was there a moment from, from the team? I think there was a, a young guy here from, from Norway. We worked a bit with uh, when he won the Norwegian Road Cycling Championships. That was, mm-hmm. that was quite special. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. And final question. Do you live by any piece of advice or motto? I, f- I think the best one is worry about the things you can actually influence and don't worry about the rest that's probably the biggest one i got from one of my teachers back in the day yep and i think it was probably a very useful one for the last 10 years as you said of running around yeah. the french countryside sourcing ingredients from the all sorts of places and not knowing what's going to be there when you arrive yeah Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Nikki. It's been a fascinating discussion. I think I think people will really love this one and, and finding out a little bit more about what happens behind the scenes and, and how things kind of work in, in pro cycling and also how, as you said, the role of nutrition has really evolved in the sport over the last sort of five or 10 years. And it's really good to see that that has happened. Obviously, it gives potential job opportunities for people like us and, and yourself. And yeah, that's, it's great to, to hear. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That was great. Thank you very much, Nikki. So next episode, we're up to episode 69 now, one of our favourite um, episodes to, to do. I mean, it wasn't enough that we've done the ebook and we've wrapped up, you know, two years of, of questions in that. But now what have we got coming? Yeah, so we've forced ourselves to summarise the last year of the podcast as well, Steph. So those of you who follow the podcast for a while will know at the end of each year we have this special episode, as we've just had with Nikki, and then we follow that up with a year-in-review podcast where we actually do brief summaries and we challenge ourselves to keep them as brief as we possibly can of all the topics that we've covered since the last one the year before. So this will be a bit of a shorter one this year, Steph, simply because we moved to fortnightly episodes this year, whereas we were doing weekly episodes prior to that. So we've actually done half the number of topics in the last 12 months. So it will make it a bit shorter, which is good because I think the first time we did this, it was by far the longest podcast we've ever done. So Mm -hmm. this will bring it back a little bit, which is good. Yeah, yeah. And just a reminder that if you do have a question you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at Fueling Endurance on Instagram or Facebook or at Fuel Endurance on Twitter, aka X. 
Thanks to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate it. And if you do listen on one of these platforms and have, you know, a few seconds or so to to spare, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. And remember also that there's now 68 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them going back to November 2020. If you don't want to listen to the podcast and you'd much prefer reading a book, then you could maybe jump on and uh, check out our ebook that we've just released. You can now get your hands on the ebook through fuelingendurance.com and hopefully down the track we'll be able to let you know that you can also get it from our Google. Yes, Google Books, yep. Yeah, Google Books. If you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for the training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, then you might like to let them know. But as always, we are going to love and leave you and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. We'll do. See you then. 